be reading from Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people in Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Thank you, Steve, for reading that passage. It is a Children's Church Sunday, and if you're a child of Children's Church age, you may go down now to the Children's Church by any means you would like. There is only one staircase. I've been trying to convince Pastor Dom to build a dumbwaiter in here so we can move food up and down, and maybe children for Children's Church someday, too. And so um, he has steadfastly refused that request. I don't know why. But children can go down to Children's Church. That's fine. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Exodus chapter 17. Let's pray, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time here this morning. Father, would you give us grace to know your mind? Would you give us grace to understand this passage? You have made us creatures with need. Not just wants, not just desires that can be put off to tomorrow, but real legitimate needs. One of the foremost of those needs is water. Here these people run into the need for water. And unfortunately, they don't respond well. Yet you had a lesson for them. You had something so profound for them that we still marvel at today, and I pray that we would seek the ultimate source of that water, who not only will give us regular old-fashioned water, but living water that will spring up in our souls into everlasting life. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The text that was read in our hearing this morning has a question. The question is this, and I'd invite you to write the question down because it's, it's an important one, and it's one you'll run into very often. The question is, when I have a legitimate need, and I don't have that need, I don't have the thing that that need has or that that need is, what should my response be? How should I talk to the Lord about that? So I need A, but A is the one thing that I don't have. How do I talk to the Lord about A? What should I think in my soul? 
Now, let's be very clear that sometimes when we start talking about needs, we're actually talking about preferences. They are needs, but sometimes we have preferences for how those needs will be met. Let me give an illustration that I intend as an introduction, and maybe you'll understand this for a moment. Back in 2010, about this time of the year, maybe a little bit later on the calendar, the Lord asked me and my wife to come and serve as the lead pastor of Fellowship Bible Church. I grew up in the great state of Georgia, where snow is a relatively rare thing. <laughs> and we moved to the Ogden Valley, where snow is not a relatively rare thing. I need, at my house, snow removal. Now, it's a need. If I'm to dispense my pastoral duties here at Fellowship Bible Church, I have a need. I need to get the snow off my driveway so that I can get out and minister to the people. Now, what I would prefer is a heated driveway so the snow would just melt and I could drive my drive. If I had a heated driveway, I would probably just drive up and down the driveway just to taunt everybody who has to go blow it. But I don't have a heated driveway. I have a snowblower and a healthy back. Next winter, I will have a snowblower and a 15-year-old. <laughs> he doesn't know yet, but I would be remiss in my parenting duties not to teach him the joys of snow removal. He needs to learn this skill, and he will next year, rest assured. My point is this, we have needs. Sometimes God meets those needs in different ways than we would prefer, but he meets them nonetheless. Sometimes we have wants. That's a, that's, a, that's a different thought for a different day. But today we're talking about legitimate needs. And how God meets those legitimate needs is often a mystery to us. And God's people are going to run square into a legitimate need. And how God meets that legitimate need is actually a lesson. And that's what I found. The more profound the need, the more profound the lesson in fulfilling that need. When God makes you really sense your need and you're hurting for something, when he meets that need with his provision, that provision comes with a really great lesson. And the more profound the need, the more profound the lesson. And what we're going to find today is a very, very profound lesson. Let's introduce our passage for this morning. We are on the, we're working our way through the book of Exodus, and we're on the third of five impossible circumstances. There's bitter water, no food, no water. I've got that underlined because that's today. Next time we're in Exodus, there will be a military crisis, and then there will be civil chaos. The people of Israel have traveled to a place called Rephidim. And I have some interesting information about Rephidim up here on the screen. It's in the southwest corner of the Sinai Peninsula. We don't know exactly where it is, but we have kind of a general idea. We can land it within a few square miles, most likely. And it's about mid-June. And in mid-June, on the southwestern tip, of the Sinai Peninsula, it is starting to get very hot. In fact, the average June rainfall is 0 0.04 days. So I think what that means is you have to live through 25 Junes before you see one rainy day. 
And when it rains, it averages 0 0.00 millimeters. So there's no rain coming from above. <laughs> Furthermore, the average high is 91 or 92 degrees. That's 28C for you Celsius people out there. It's 91, 92, which doesn't sound too bad, but it's 68 to 70% humidity. And that's a heat index of about 111. And that's the average day. On a hot day in June, the heat index will top 130. The sun shines full. No cloud cover, no darkness, no fog. Nothing like that at all, an average of 12 hours a day at that time of the year. So from dawn to dusk, it is full, bright sun without a cloud in the sky. When you look at pictures of that landscape, it is absolutely barren. There is nothing green at all. There's no plants at all. It is a scorched and parched land where if you don't know where water is, you will die in a hurry. Well, Moses thinks he knows where he is. He probably does know where he is. In fact, I'll show you later on that he does. He's familiar with this book. But let, that brings us to our first point, a quarreling people. And we can read about this in verses 1 through 3. Moses is actually back in territory familiar to him. This is where he would take his father-in-law's flocks, and they would journey around this area. He knew this area pretty well. He had some local knowledge, and we're very sure that he expected to find some watering holes. He expected to find some springs. There's some springs that pop up here and there throughout this place, but it must have been a particularly dry and hot summer. And when they arrived at the springs, the springs for that amount of time or for that season had stopped their flow. And suddenly the people are in major, major need. I think from a, like a survival perspective, this is number three. You, you, a lack of oxygen will kill you in minutes. A lack of heat will kill you in hours and a lack of water will kill you in a few days. And so, they're in trouble. And we know that there's two million of them with their flocks and their herds. And the water situation is dire and desperate. And when the people see this, it says that they grew very angry. But I want us to notice that the text is actually very emphatic that there is no water. We're told here, it says that they came, to, they came and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. A more literal translation of that is no or nothing at the beginning of that phrase. It would be like this, they came to camp at Rephidim and nothing as far as water was concerned. They sent scout parties out, and the scout parties just got more thirsty as they searched. The scout parties came back needing water from their trial. Moses said, well, I think I saw a spring over there one time and sent some people over there, and no luck. I think I remember there being a spring a few miles from here, and they went over there. Nothing. They searched everywhere, high and low, no water, and suddenly the people are faced with a very severe threat. And it says that when they realize that there's no water in this place, 
that they began to quarrel among themselves. Most specifically, they began to quarrel with Moses. Now, we're no stranger to Israelite grumbling, are we? But I want you to know that quarreling is a step above grumbling. You know, we grumble because taxes have gone up, as an example. We grumble. But a quarrel is to partake of the great American tradition and begin to shout, we're going to vote the buggers out. You're going to take steps to remedy the situation. And in this case, it's a violent step. They're threatening. Their quarrel comes with a threat. We want water. We want it now. And if you don't give us water, we're going to stone you. Moses says to the Lord a little bit later on, these people are going to stone me. He's not wrong. Their quarrel has a threat behind it. And it says, too, that along with their quarreling, they begin to grumble and they revisit this now tired refrain, did you bring us out here to kill us? It's faithless. There's an accusation in it. There's no trust in it at all. Lord, you brought us out here to kill us. You brought us out here to kill our kids. Think of the little ones. They're angry. They're upset. They're making threats. No water can be found. And in all their agitation, they just keep getting thirstier and thirstier. And that brings us to our next point. Moses asks them, in all of their complaining and quarreling and grumbling, he says, why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? Now we have to pause here at this because we have to make a few observations. We don't readily understand what it means to test the Lord. We're told so far that the Lord has been testing them. But what does it mean to put the shoe on the other foot? Doesn't God say in the book of Micah, for example, to test me? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, what Moses is doing here is he's giving us a look into their hearts. He's not just reporting they grumbled, they quarreled. He's actually advancing it and saying, I know why you're grumbling and quarreling. Moses was making an interpretation of their motivations. And he was right. He was doing it under divine inspiration. He understood exactly what they were doing. They weren't so much quarreling and grumbling at Moses. What they were doing was testing the Lord. There was a motivation behind this grumbling and quarreling. What does it mean when he says you're testing the Lord? You're not grumbling, you're not quarreling, you're testing. That's really what's going on here. That's, where, that's how you're motivated. Well, what does that mean? What's the accusation in that? What's the interpretation of their motives? I think the commentator, Douglas Stewart, defines it best. He says this, that testing is a cynical manipulation of God. Or it's an attempt to cynically manipulate God. What Douglas Stewart is saying here is when the people found that they had no water, they thought to themselves, well, in the immediate past, when we raised a ruckus and we grumbled, we got what we wanted. So let's grumble. And when grumbling produced no water, they did what every person does. They ratcheted it up to the next level 
and began to threaten Moses to stone him. It wasn't an empty threat, but it was an attempt to strong-arm the Lord into giving them what they wanted, when they wanted it, how they wanted it. They weren't trying to submit to the Lord. It wasn't an honest question, why did you bring us out here? It was cynical and manipulative. Now, I think Stuart's right, and I'm going to show you that from a few different passages. The first one I have on the screen is from Matthew 4, 7. You might want to write down these two as a cross-reference. You remember Satan took Jesus into the wilderness, or the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, rather, to test him? And do you remember what the first temptation was? He said, I want you to turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Just turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, no, no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. Jesus was apparently under the Lord's instruction not to do that. And the next temptation was this. The devil, by some power, took him to the pinnacle of the temple, which rose above a busy courtyard of people, hundreds and hundreds of Israelites below. And he was up several stories in the air, You can picture them a hundred feet or more off the ground. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down off the pinnacle, base jump, as it were, off this tall building, down into the crowd. And then the devil quotes scripture. He says, doesn't the psalmist say that angels will bear you up and your foot will not strike against the rock? And Jesus says, God also says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, I don't have a direct promise to the Lord that I can do this suicidal leap, presuming on the Lord to cover for my stupidity. Yes, a Bible verse can be supplied that would lead you to that wrong conclusion. But ultimately, that's an attempt to get the Lord to bow to me rather than me bowing to the Lord. By testing the Lord, I'm forcing his hand to do something on my behalf. Then, who's in control of the Lord? Well, I am, because I'm the one strong-arming him to get him to do what I want him. I think I have some modern examples later, but I think a good example is this. When a person says, I'm going to delay asking the Lord to save me from my sins. I'm going to delay this sinful thing that I have planned and do it once or twice and enjoy it a little bit, and then I'll ask for forgiveness and he'll have to forgive me. Oh, Oh, will you now? Don't you know that faith is a grace? Confession is a grace? The awareness that you're even sinning against God is a grace? God gives you no guarantees that he's going to continue to knock on the door of your heart one minute past right now. You are presuming on the good grace of God that you do not deserve. God will not be tested that way. That's an example. Let me give another passage. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias 
and Sapphira sell a plot of land. They sold it for a certain amount of money, and they took a certain percentage of that money and put it in their pockets, which was perfectly fine. It's, Peter says, it, it, it was your property, your money, you do with it what you want. But then they took the rest of the money, the majority of the money, and brought it before the church and said, we have given all the proceeds of our land sale to the Lord. Well, had they? No. They'd kept back a little bit of it and put it in their pockets. It wasn't wrong to keep it back, but it was wrong to lie, to tell the whole church we're giving all of it, to do it in a worship service before the Lord, and think that there will be no consequences for that. And the Spirit of God strikes both of them dead. But not before Peter says, why are you putting the Holy Spirit of God to the test? So what we can see here is that testing is cynical, Testing is hypocritical. Testing can be sinning with a high hand. Examples that I have on the screen. What would it mean to test the Lord? A person continuing in sin and saying, if the Lord wanted me to stop this sinning, he would have stopped. Oh, the Lord can stop you. It's by his patience and forbearance and grace that you haven't been killed yet. The Lord can end your life in a blink. He's giving you opportunity to repent and change, and that's a grace and a mercy. Don't confuse that. Or this. Unless the Lord shows me clearly, by tonight, XYZ, by doing XYZ, I'm going to move forward with these plans. Now, sometimes people call that a fleece, and they take that from the book of Judges and Gideon putting out a fleece. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying there's a direction that perhaps Christians have warned them against, or perhaps even that the word of God would discourage them from going. And they say, the Lord has to give me a sign, as it were, by tonight, or I'm going to go forward with my plan. It's, it's actually unbelief, because in saying that, they don't really think the Lord is going to do anything to stop them. But it gives them this sort of final spiritual feather in their cap to move their plans forward. And this is testing the Lord. This is making cynical, hypocritical demands of the Lord. I think of a person, a professing Christian, who comes to the Lord's table and takes the bread and the cup, but does it while living in very obvious and unconfessed sin. 
I want to be careful with this one. I bring it up because it's a Bible one. You can read it in 1 Corinthians. But I don't want a Christian who's struggling with sin. We All Christians struggle with sin. And keeping a running confession of God with that sin, failing, going to the Lord, failing. You keep coming to the table, okay? You don't apply this to you. I'm talking about a person who has an obvious sin in their life that they are doing everything in their power to continue. They're not fighting it. They know they're not they know they're not fighting it. In fact, they're trying to keep it alive. For example, uh, I knew a financial planner, a, a church's financial manager. He managed the church's finances. Stole over a million dollars from that church over the course of about 10 years. All the while taking the Lord's table. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. If you're fighting a sin habit and even failing, keep coming to the table. I think we know the difference, right? That is putting the Lord to the test. Now let's come out of that for just a moment. Well, let, as we were in there for just a moment, let's come back out of that and understand what's going on in this passage. God's people come to an area where there's no water. They, of course, need water. God made us to need water. Our bodies are whatever percentage water. They're in a very dry place with a very high heat index. They're going to need more water than most people. And when they arrive, they don't have what they want. And so they try to strong arm the Lord in a manipulative and cynical way, making threats of God's leaders, thinking that they can now control God and his actions. Now, this is a profound need that the people have. God would not disagree with that. God understands that they have a need. And Moses cries out, and that brings us to our next point, God's purposeful provision. We're going to pick up our pace here. So you'll have to kind of hang with me. We're going to go through these next parts fast. Moses cries out, and some commentators actually criticize Moses for the way that he cried out here. I'll admit the word means kind of a desperate cry. It's used in Genesis 4.10 when it says that the ground of the, the ground cried out when it received Abel's blood. Or in Exodus 5.15, the people went to Pharaoh after being under uh, more severe treatment of slavery, and they cried out to Pharaoh. There's a, it, it's a, it's a, a desperate cry. It's, there's imminent danger or there's some sort of injustice going on. It's the sort of cry that we have when we see and feel an urgent need. And some people, some commentators, have criticized Moses for crying to the Lord in this situation. I would just say, what was he supposed to do? He's about to have people drop like flies. There's probably already been some heat exhaustion. The people are saying words like, I'm going to stone you. I think it was perfectly appropriate to cry out in desperation 
and injustice. He'd done a thorough search of the area, and there was no water to be found. I think it's commendable. I would go the other direction. And judging from God's response, I think God deems it commendable. God says, here, I have this response for you. Moses, I want you to, to select some elders. God raises up Moses, and he raises up some of the leaders of the tribe, and he says, I want you to start to go on a walk. Now, they are at a place called Rephidim, and they're headed to a place called Horeb. Now, these are going to be very important names in just a moment. But just so you know, the distance from Rephidim to Horeb isn't very far. We don't know how far, because we don't know how far those locations are. But most commentators said it can be done in less than a half-day travel. It's maybe a mile, maybe two miles. How long would it take two million people to walk a mile? Probably a half-day. Especially once they kind of get everything picked up. But God says, I want you to take this walk. It's not a short walk, not a hundred-yard walk. It's a bit longer walk. But Moses gets out in front of them with the staff, and he takes them on a walk. And they arrive at this place called Horeb. And it dead ends. It dead ends into a giant rock. This rock where the walk ended terminates in a steep mountain face. The steep mountain face goes up to about 7,500 feet. That's about the height of the peak of the divide road, if you're curious. But they're down much closer to sea level at start. So they walk to the base of a very steep and jagged rock, and it is dry. When you look at pictures of this particular rock towering 7,500 feet into the air. It looks like three or four giant pieces of chalk rising into the sky. There's nothing green. There's no trees. There's no bushes. Just barren rock jutting 7,500 feet up into the sky. They get there. Moses says, I want you to take your staff and strike the rock. Not a pebble, not a rock like the size of a baseball, but a mountain, impenetrable rock that's dry as bone. And when Moses touches that mountain face, a crack appears and water gushes out for two million people. Perhaps there was a loud crack, water breaking forth, water bursting forth. From the Israelites' perspective, this is a miracle of creation. How do you get water from a rock? Now we know that our mountains are water reservoirs. <laughs> Huge subterranean lakes under each of these mountains. But in this dry land, 
I don't think so. This is a miracle of creation. God pouring water out of that rock. Now this begs an important question. And this is the question that tells us why this passage is in the Bible. Why that rock? Why that rock? Of all the rocks in the Sinai Peninsula, of all the giant mountains that shoot straight up in the air, of all the dry places, why did God have them walk to that one? Well, this is our last question of the text, the main question, why? Horeb, the place where they're going, the place where they ended up, verse, where does it say here? It says, go to the place called Horeb, which Moses renames Massa and Meribah. Horeb becomes their drinking hole. They go back to camp, and they're shuttling back and forth to get their water on the daily. We're told, that's why most commentators think it was maybe a mile or two, because it's a lot of work carrying water. But Horeb became the place where the Israelites, they were at their camp at Rephidim, and they would walk to Horeb, get their water, walk back. And for some time, they shuttled back and forth with their water. But you have to turn with me to these next two passages because they're incredibly important. Horeb has already played an important role in our journey. Remember when I told you this was familiar territory to Moses? This is a place that Moses had already been. Go with me to chapter 3. Go with me to chapter 3. Keep your finger in Exodus 17. Horeb has already played an important role in this story. This very place. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to where? Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. And here, God begins this calling of Moses. The entire Exodus story begins with this theophany, God appearing and calling Moses out of this burning bush at Horeb. So Horeb has already played an important role moving forward. Now, the next point is this. Horeb will play an important role in the future. Horeb will play an important role in the future. I have you in chapter 3. Go with me to verse 12. This is God. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent for you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, which he had, you shall serve God on this mountain. The mountain of which Horeb is the base is Mount Sinai. The mountain is Sinai. The base is Horeb. They've camped at Rephidim. They can't find water. Moses says, 
follow me. They walk to the base of Sinai, which is a place called Horeb. And out of the base of that mountain comes water. A few days later, and a few chapters later, the people of Israel are going to move camp to the base of Sinai. And it's on Sinai where the people are going to receive God's word, God's law. It's where people are going to worship. Moses is going to go up on top of that mountain and receive the Ten Commandments. Moses, God is going to appear to the people in Exodus 32, if memory serves. And the people there are going to offer worship, and God is going to say, get away from this mountain, Mount Sinai, out of this mountain where the water is gushing. Don't come near it. And God appears to them on that mountain. Okay? So let's put all this together. Let's put all this together. From that very mountain, God is going to deliver his life-saving word. And as an example, a physical example of his giving them this life-saving word out of the base of that mountain is going to flow his life-giving water. And God wanted them, while they were at Rephidim, to go to Sinai to get their water. Go to Sinai and get your water. Go to Sinai and get your water. Go to Sinai and get your water. And then they would go to Sinai and get his word. And go to Sinai and get his word. You see what God is doing. He didn't want to just lead them into need so that they would have it miraculously met. He led them into need so that at this very specific location, he could illustrate for them with water what they really need with his word. It's a really profound lesson in this. Now, what are we to do with this? I have a biblical conclusion. You don't have to turn there. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a woman about water and about Moses and about a mountain. She's a little mixed up. She's drinking out of a well called Jacob's Well, and she thinks the law was given at a place called Mount Gerizim. Jesus goes to her. She believes that Mount Gerizim is where the law was delivered to her. As I said, she's a little mixed up. And Jesus tells her that she's wrong about that. But they start having a discussion about water and the law. Jesus says, hey, can you give me a drink of water? And she says, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. <laughs> and Jesus says, if you knew who was asking, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And she says, where do you get this living water? 
the well is deep and you don't have anything to draw with, buddy. And Jesus says, out of me will spring forth rivers of living water. Then she starts talking about mountains. The law was given on this mountain, not that mountain. But Jesus has something to say to her. He says, ma'am, it's not about Gerizim. It's not about Sinai. It's about me. It's about me. He says that he wants to give her living water that will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We noted a couple weeks ago in Sunday school that Jesus was constantly reliving what we see in the book of Exodus. The Israelites have a need for water, and the Lord himself was the solution for the water. And the water was to symbolize the life-giving nature of God's word and their daily need for it. And so we come to the New Testament, and Jesus meets a woman who has a need. Her need is love. And she's looking for it in all the wrong places. She's had five failed marriages. Jesus sees this need. And he says, I'm what you need. I'm what you need. I will satisfy this thirst, which you've been looking for in so many different places and can't seem to find help for. And I will give you this living water. And she believes. She's redeemed. And so I would say to you today, what's your need? I'd ask you, what's your need? It's probably a legitimate one. For some of us, it's love, companionship, affirmation. For some of us, for some of us it's financial. We've all got a soft spot, right? I find that our soft spots kind of stick with us through life. Well, you can keep trying to meet that need with whatever you find out there. But if God could say a word about your life, he would say, nothing of that was to be found, now was it? And Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, that need that you have, I would love to give that to you. And you. You need affirmation? I died for you. I rose for you. You need love? God so loved the world that he gave me. And I'm, I'm showing you the Father's love. You need finances? I told Peter to go catch a fish, and there was tax money in the fish's mouth. 
I can provide for you. The sparrows, they don't go hungry. Lilies, they don't spin. I got you. Your search, your search is fruitless by design because Jesus wants to be the great treasure that you find. And he wants you to entrust yourselves to him and to his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us a a sense of how we're trying to meet our needs with things that simply won't satisfy. And just as you led the Israelites to a place of need, and in their need they attempted to manipulate you, we understand that with things that mean the most to us, we try to manipulate you. You're unmanipulatable. (laughs) You won't be gamed. You won't be tested. You won't be engineered by us. And yet, you shower us with blessing. You've given us all things in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to meet those needs with your glorious provision. And so, give us grace to look to you. Give us grace to hope in you. Give us grace to see how you intend to meet those very deep needs of our lives. And may we look for answers from you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.